Um, I don't know if you've ever attended a stadium full of fans, and you see one person, it might be you, wearing the opposing team's colors. You know what I'm saying? I mean, everybody's wearing the same, you know, they're cheering for the same. I got in trouble uh, many years ago when I was coaching. Um, we went over to Tenora, and I was coaching for Wazian, and I was wearing a green shirt. Now, if you don't know Tenora, they're Tenora Rams, they're green. I'm coaching for Wazian, they're red. I'm the coach. I show up wearing green, and all oh, the parents gave me a hard time. And I was like, well, if you all buy me a coaching shirt, we wouldn't have to deal with this, right? But in that moment, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm sort of sticking out like the wrong color, right? But have you ever been like in a stadium where you just, a sea of people all wearing the same color, cheering for the same team? There's that one person that's there that is like cheering for the other team. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. Like I said, maybe that's you. I'm going to say this. It's a lonely feeling for that person, right? And for them, it's like, do I cheer or don't I cheer? They sort of sit there and look around like I'm the only one wearing the other team's color. But I'm sitting there thinking, you're wearing the jersey. You might as well cheer, right? I mean, it's obvious who you're there for. Well, maybe it isn't that way in a sporting event that you've been to, but maybe it's that way in life for you. Maybe you have stood up for something that nobody else believes in, and you're sort of looking around thinking, am I the only one who believes this? Maybe it's at your school. Maybe it's at your job. Maybe it's as a family get-together, and you're, you're just sort of sitting there, and you're thinking, is my opinion, my position, my uh, conviction so different from those around me that there's nobody else that believes this or agrees with me on this? It's a lonely feeling, isn't it? Maybe you've been reading the newspaper, you've been on social media, you've had conversations, and you start to wonder if your beliefs are solid or right, because they seem to be so completely different than everyone else around you. And you're thinking, how do they believe this? And I've got my belief, but I seem to be the oddball here. Nobody else is agreeing with me on this. Am I right or am I wrong? Am I old-fashioned? Am I out of touch? Am I naive? Or am I right? And they're wrong. I tell you, living with integrity, and if I were to define integrity, we'd say honest, or living with, uh, with, uh, without compromise or without corruption. Okay? Living with integrity and doing so in a culture that isn't sharing the same values as you or I, that is tough. That is tough. How do you do it without becoming judgmental? How do you do it without coming across being judgmental or being arrogant or pompous? I mean, because people look at you and they're like, oh, you seem to be so arrogant, like your way is the only way. Well, Daniel chapter 3 is going to give us some insight on how to handle this. So if you would, grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, get one to you. Just raise your hand and open up to the book of Daniel. It's in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 3, right past Isaiah, Isaiah and Jeremiah. Get past Ezekiel and you'll be right there at Daniel. Daniel chapter 3. We've been looking at Daniel here the past couple weeks. Chapter 1, we witnessed Daniel and, and uh, his three companions, their determination, their resolve that they had. In chapter 2, we witnessed uh, last week that a reminder that God deserves all the praise. 
all the praise. We celebrated some things that God's doing in this church, and we give him all the praise. Uh, We really didn't finish chapter 2 last week. Um, What had happened was King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and he wanted everybody else not just to interpret the dream, but tell him the dream. Nobody could do it except Daniel, because Daniel went to God, and God gave him what the dream was and what the interpretation of the dream was. But we didn't really finish that, so actually before we start reading in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to rewind, go back to chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 24, just so we sort of catch up on what happened here. Chapter 2, verse 24, Daniel went to see Arioch, who had been ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king. I'll tell him the meaning of his dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I found one of the captives from Judah who will tell your majesty the meaning of the dream. The king said to Daniel, is this true? Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, listen very carefully. There's no wise men, enchanters, magicians, fortune tellers who can tell such the king such things. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. I love this. Daniel is very bold in talking to the king. Nobody can do this, but I'm going to tell you, there is a God in heaven. He can do it all. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dreams and visions you saw as you laid on your bed. Verse 29. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. The revealer, referring to God, of mysteries, has shown you what's going to happen. And it's not because I'm wiser than any other living person that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wanted you to understand what you were thinking about. Again, he gives God the credit. He goes, listen, God wants you to know what's going on here. The revealer of your life is talking to you. So let's make sure we get this straight. Your majesty, in your vision, you saw in front of you a huge, powerful statue of a man shining brilliantly, frightening, and awesome. And the head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Legs were iron. And its feet were a combination of iron and clay. But as you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain by supernatural means. It struck the feet of the iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue collapsed into a heap of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. The pieces were crushed as small as chaff as on a threshing floor, and the wind blew them all away without a trace. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. Verse 36. This was a dream. Now I'll tell you, Your Majesty, what it means. Your Majesty, you're the king over many kings. The God of heaven, again referring to God, not you, king, but the God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler of all the inhabited world and has put even the animals and birds under your control. You're the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another great kingdom, which is inferior inferior to yours, will rise to take place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third great kingdom, represented by the bronze belly and thighs, will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth great kingdom, as strong as iron. That kingdom will uh, smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. Verse 41. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and clay, so that the kingdom will be divided. Some parts of it will be as strong as iron, others as weak as clay. The mixture of iron and clay also show that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. But this will not succeed, just as iron and clay do not mix. Now listen to this, verse 44. 
During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. We can read about that in Revelation. No one will ever conquer it. It will shatter all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand, but it will stand forever. That's the meaning of the rock, cut from the mountain. By supernatural means, crushing dust, the statue, iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God has shown your majesty what will happen in the future. The dream is true. And its meaning is certain. Now it's clear that Daniel gave God all the credit for this dream. And the interpretation. He just kept spitting out. It is God who did this. It is God who did this. I mean he nailed it when he put this dream out there. Or the interpretation of the dream. Right? Or should we say God nailed it. Right? I mean the dream is told with incredible uh, precision and interpretation. And Babylon's going to rise to this peak power, followed by all these other kingdoms and nations that will follow, and they'll be lesser in power and lesser in power. And then he gets to the point where he says, finally, the stone that demolishes this statue is, that is coming is Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God, a heavenly kingdom. Now, Daniel's resolve and seeking God and giving him the glory through all of that He gets promoted because he chose to stand and say what was true to a very evil king. He's like, I'm going to tell it as it is, God. You gave it to me. I'm giving it out to this king. And he did. And the amazing thing is that when all is said and done, that king is like, this is awesome. Thank you for sharing this dream with me. I'm going to promote you. Daniel gets promoted, put above all these other people. Now, here's where the story changes. We get to Daniel chapter 3. So look with me at Daniel chapter 3. This is taking place five years at least later. You know, I say that. I want you to think about this, okay? It's been a while. Because the king just heard this incredible interpretation of his dream, a very vivid dream that kept him awake, right? He's the king of, he's the head of the statue, All these other kingdoms will follow. This rock's going to come and crush everything. I mean, if this king is really thinking it through, he should be thinking, wow, my kingdom, the one I'm in charge of, is going to come to an end. I'm going to get crushed by a heavenly kingdom. That should scare him, don't you think? I mean, shouldn't he be pondering about all this, thinking, when's this going to happen? How's it going to happen? And there's this mighty God that is going to crush all earthly kingdoms. So he should be learning more about the rock, right? He should be learning more about the God of heaven and his coming kingdom. Instead, we look at verse uh, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. <laughs> okay, let's get this right. 90 feet tall. That is tall. That is huge. It's sort of out of proportion to and it's set up on the plane where everybody can see it. He's had five years to think about this statue and that God's going to crush his kingdom. And what does he do? He builds a statue made of solid gold or it's covered in gold. He's like, you know what? I'm going to change the future. I'm going to build something that represents me. Not just the head. Remember, the head was gold in his dream. He's like, "Mm, we're going to make it all gold. I'm going to rule everything. Now, didn't you remember his dream? The rock that's going to crush this kingdom? 
It's like he's saying, mm, no, God's not going to crush me. Matter of fact, I will crush all other nations and it will be all gold. Wow. You would have thought after all of that, he would have understood to be careful in what he does, right? Now, if you look um, and you're reading scripture in different translations, it really isn't put out 90 feet, 9, 90 by 90. It's actually 60 cubits by 6 cubits is how the original translation goes, which is a lot of sixes. And as we know, when you look at the Bible, when you see the number six represented, it's usually the number for mankind. It's a number of incompletion. The number seven is a heavenly number. It's a seven is number used to represent God and completion, right? We know from Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, it says, Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for the number of the beast is 666. When you see that number 666, that's the number of Satan. Okay, It's not a cool rock band name. Okay, It's very evil. And whenever you see those sixes in Scripture, it usually means it's incomplete. And isn't it amazing that King Nebuchadnezzar builds a, build, a statue that's 60 cubits by 6 cubits? He starts getting all these sixes out there, and maybe that's just a side note of nothing great meaning. But again, what we're seeing here is an ungodly statue being built. He tells this massive crowd as we go to read on, verse 2, he sent messages to the princes and the prefects, the governors, advisors, counselors, judges, magistrates, all the provincial officials uh, to this dedication of the statue set up. Basically, he made a de- declaration. I want everybody out here to this statue. I want you to see how awesome it is, how it represents me. I want you all to join me in bowing down to it. He orchestrates, or I should say, he assembles a great orchestra to gather as well. And he says, at the sound of the music, everybody's going to bow. Everybody's going to bow. And everyone does in this story, except three Jews. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as we know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're not sure where Daniel is in the story. Uh, possibly, you know, checking this out and reading this through and studying He's possibly out on an assignment in another province. Uh, what we do know is if he was there, he would have been in the story from what we've learned about Daniel so far. But look with me at verse 12. There were some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you, your majesty. Now, these are some men who caught Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing. Everybody else is bowing to the statue. They're standing. Now, trust me on this one. Uh, over a month ago, when it was like I laid on my heart to preach on Daniel, did not know we'd be dealing with the NFL right now and all this standing bowing going on, okay? So please, this has nothing to do with what's going on there, okay? So we're like, oh, wow, he's, he's going to talk about the NFL. Nope, not going to go there. All right. These, uh, these uh, men in uh, authority saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing there. And I busted. We don't like these guys anyway because they just got promotions over us because they're friends with Daniel, and Daniel's Mr. Know-All the Dream guy, right? And uh, we don't like these guys, and this is our chance to get them because they're not bowing. So they go to the king, and this is what we're reading here in verse 12. Look at verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. They were brought in. Nebuchadnezzar said to him, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods 
or to worship the gods, the gold statue I've set up. I'll give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I've made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you'll be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God is going to be able to rescue you from my power? Oh, what an arrogant, pompous king he is, isn't he? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. Oh. oh wait, now, wait, now, who's the arrogant ones, right? Or who's the confident ones? They weren't looking for trouble. Please understand this. It wasn't like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Hey, when they start playing that music, let's stand. Yeah, and let's raise our fists, or let's lock arms, or let's, let's make a protest. Let's hold up signs. Let's, 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 let's cause a bunch of other people to join us. Yeah, let's do it. No. There's no protesting. As they found themselves, they see the statue and the declaration is made. At the sound of the music, bow to the statue. They're like, no. No. Because that goes against what we believe in our faith. Their actions weren't public, but they weren't hidden either. They must have known they were going to be discovered because they worshiped God more than they worshiped man. And they knew in this moment when they were told to worship man, it ain't going to happen because we worship God. If you look on it, um, well, actually, let me read something here from uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon. It's something interesting. He said, he goes, you'll not be able to go through life without being discovered, speaking to Christians. A lighted candle cannot be hid. There is a feeling among some good people that it will be wise to be very discreet and hide their light under a bushel. They intend to lie low all the wartime and come out when the palms are being distributed. They hope to travel to heaven by the back lanes and skulk in the glory in disguise. Ah, me, what a degenerate set. So there's going to be times when we're going to be asked to violate what we believe, Christians. And actually, it's already happening. It's been happening for centuries. And it's sort of like somebody wants us to change teams. To go to the team that appears to be having an upper hand. And because you're living according to your convictions and what God's laid upon your heart, you're saying, I'm not changing teams. I'm not going against what God has put upon my heart. Not going to do it, right? I was reading in my notes... Uh, in my study notes in the Bible, and it said there's a lot of reasons or excuses that these three men could have made. I'm going to read these excuses to you. They could have very well said this. Hey, let's fall down, but we just won't worship the idol. And I'm not, I'll tell you what, we won't become worship uh, idol worshipers. We'll just do it this one time and then ask God for forgiveness. You know what? The king has absolute power. We have to obey him. God will understand. The king appointed us. We owe this to him. This is a foreign land, so God will excuse us for following the customs of the land. Here's another one. Our ancestors set up idols in God's temple, so this isn't half as bad. Here's another one. This is one we hear a lot. Well, we're not hurting anybody. It's our life, right? If we get ourselves killed and some pagans take our high positions, they won't help our people in exile, so we better not do it and keep our position, right? Now, I reminisce back to college, thinking this through. In this situation, and when I was in college, and it was like right in the midst of, of college, and I made a choice that I look back and I incredibly regret. 
And I'm sure we've all had moments in our lives when we've made choices that we regret, right? And I look back at that moment and I made all kinds of excuses, very similar to these. I look back and I sit there and think, you know, I, I owe it to my friends. They're doing this. I, you know, yeah. Oh, it's only one time. God will forgive me. It doesn't matter. I was back in college. And I think back nine months ago to another clear, very vivid picture that came to my mind as I was going through uh, this sermon. It's like, it's like God was saying, Rex, do you remember nine months ago when you could have stood for me and you didn't? You just sort of stood there and laughed like everybody else and you didn't stand for me. You bowed. And that was a hard one to swallow. And I realized that we can all come up with some really good excuses, but what are they? They're just rationalizations, right? I mean, what does God's word say? Exodus 20, verses 1 to 4 says this. Then God gave the people all these instructions. I I am the Lord your God. I rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of slavery. You must not have any other God but me. I don't know how to translate any that, that scripture any more than what it already says. When God says, you're not to have any other God but me. You must not make yourself an idol or any kind of image or anything in the heavens or on the earth or on the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, am your God. I'm a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for other gods. So you know what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did? They remembered Exodus 20, verses 1 to 4. No other gods but me. God, we will stand. We will not bow to this idol. We will not bow to another man. And they didn't judge the situation by the king's threat or by the heat of the, the fiery furnace. They didn't look over at the furnace and say, whew, that looks hot. King looks intimidating. No. See, their convictions were made before they even got there. Before they ever had to go there and, and see a statue and hear the music, they had already made up in their hearts, we will not worship any other gods but one. So it was really, I believe, possibly and easy for them to stand at that moment because their convictions were already made. Men will frown at you, but God is smiling on you. Do not be moved, says one author. So here we discover a great perspective on prayer. Look at verse 16 and 17 and 18 with me in chapter 3. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty, even if he doesn't. We want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Wow. That's bold, isn't it? And you think about this. Was their allegiance, was it based on answered prayer? I mean, had had prayer been answered at this point in time? It's like, oh, we can base this because we know prayer is going to be answered. Prayer hasn't been answered yet. Was their decision based on the fact that they're going to get all these blessings? No blessings had come to them yet, so no. Was it based on social status or position, or were they just standing because they knew God was going to save them? They didn't know. 
We have the luxury of having God's Word, having read this story multiple times. We saw it in Sunday school. Maybe for some of us older people, we saw the flannel graph, you know, and they took them and put them in the furnace. And, and so we know. We know what happens, right? But for the person who reads the story for the first time, it's like, wow, this is a cool story. But here's the thing. It was a real historical account, and these three men were standing there not knowing what's going to happen in the very next second. But they stood. They stood. Even if. Two powerful words. Even if he doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow. Even if you do whatever you want to do to us, and God doesn't answer, that's fine. Even if. Even if. Maybe you've heard that song by Mercy Me. If you've not, I encourage you to listen to it. A great song. Reflects on this story. We know God can change the situation, right? Church, we know God is powerful. We know God is faithful. We know this. I mean, that's why we come to church to worship God. We give Him the glory. It's not about us. It's not about the band. It's not about me. It's not about coffee. It's not about the chairs. It's not about a building. It's about the fact that we serve a God who is, who is able, who is powerful, who is mighty, who is faithful. And He says, I love you. I will never fail you. I will never leave you. I'll never abandon you. And we're like, thank you. Thank you, God. That's why we worship Him. And prayer is not asking God to do what we want to change the situation, even though that's why we pray sometimes. Oh, God, you know, hear my prayers and change this. It's like, I know we think that maybe that's what prayer is about, but prayer is inviting God to do what's right and asking our hearts to line up with what he's going to do. And can God change things? Can God do things according to prayer? Yes. But there's humility in prayer. And as we submit, we say, may your will be done, God, not ours. And they recognize that God's plan might be different from their desires. Their desires are not to become a barbecue. Their desires, I want to live, right? But you know what? Even if we're still not going to bow. Because God, you were able. You were mighty. You know, another amazing thing is that these young men, they had no previous encounter with God and Him doing miraculous things. So when you think about that. Up to this point in time, from historical accounts that we have, they hadn't seen, like, go back to Egypt and the plagues and how God rescued. They didn't see any. They didn't see Red Sea parting. They didn't see staff turn into a snake, back into a staff. They didn't see any kind of crazy miracles like Elijah and Elisha. They haven't seen any of that. Again, had they seen all these miracles, that would be very easy to stand. I've seen God do this time and time before. I'll stand again. They've not seen any of those miracles to this point in time. We need to remember that early Christians were not thrown into the lion's dens because they worshipped Jesus, but because they would not worship the emperor. As you go back and look, how many Christians were martyred? It was about the fact they wouldn't worship the emperor, they wouldn't worship Pilate, they wouldn't worship whatever king was on the throne. In our days, we have a lot of people who say, well, I love Jesus, and I think a lot of Jesus, but you know what? They still bow because they love the things of the world more. We've got to learn to love the things of the world less and worship God more. John says in 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I'm going to tell you, when all this went down, the king got mad. This guy was a loony, okay? 
And I mean that in all biblical terms, if there is such a word. Okay, so look at verse 19 with me. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. You ever seen somebody get really mad? Not that just that their face turns red, but it becomes distorted. It's very evil-like, right? This is what's going on. He commands that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Verse 20. He ordered some of the strongest men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. They tie them up. They throw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fall into the roaring flames. Can you imagine this? It's heated seven times. Flames are just leaping out. These strong men who grabbed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go to throw them in. As they're throwing them in, they are incinerated. They're gone. They're burned up. They die in the spot. And there goes Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the heat of the flames. What happens? Verse 24. Suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumps up in amazement and exclaims to his advisors, didn't we just tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Well, yes, your majesty, we certainly did. They replied, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking in the fire, unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood when everybody else bowed. And now they're in the fire. Oh, they're still standing. They're walking around in the fire. They're having a conversation with a fourth person, a godly, divine person who we believe to be Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus, in the scriptures, called he was the same today, yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We know that Jesus was there at the creation of this earth. We do injustice when we say, oh, well, didn't Jesus enter this planet in Bethlehem as a baby? Yes, but he was around before that. And many believe that this was him in the fire right there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I want to say this and stop for a moment and say, you know, there are times when we feel like we're the only ones standing. Because we believe that God's word is true. And we live according to his word. And this world today doesn't. This world takes scripture and they're like, well, I'll take this piece. And they'll rip it out and say, I don't want to believe that. Oh, but um, yeah, I can deal with that verse, uh, but not that one. No, that can't happen. And when you start standing on all of God's word and you stand up, people will look at you and they will judge you. And you will be called names. And you will sort of start feeling like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Like, I feel like I'm alone on this. I feel like I'm alone on this. When the heat of this culture starts pressing on upon you, I want to tell you this right now. Jesus stands with you. Jesus stands with you. Look at the person next to you. Just tell them, Jesus stands with you. We haven't done this well. Go for it. Oh, yeah. Now look at another person. Tell them, Jesus stands with you. We need to remind each other that because a lot of times we think, oh, I'm doing the right thing, but I feel like I'm very alone. And we need to be told, you know what, Jesus is standing with you right now. We think become, because we didn't get a raise or we didn't get a certain blessing that our neighbor got or a family member got or, or my child didn't start in a game or like, oh my goodness, we're unsuccessful. God doesn't care. And it's like, God's like, ah, oh, I care about you. Just quit judging yourself by these worldly standards. Just because you didn't get a blessing or this didn't go right for you doesn't mean I abandoned you. I'm with you. Because they stood, because God rescued him in this particular story, Nebuchadnezzar had no interest of God prior to this. Now he does. Verse 26. Let me read along. 
Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire. The high officers, the officials, governors, advisors crowded around them and they saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their head was singed. I lit a candle in my office the other day and I singed my knuckle hairs. I'm thinking, these guys just jumped into a flame seven times hotter and nothing. No singed hair, no smelly robe, nothing. You know, and I'm like, oh man. Right? Okay, I'm sorry. Where did I go? Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted him. They defiled the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. If any people, whatever race, nation, language, speaks a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from them. Their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There's no other god who can rescue like this. (laughs) It all changed when they stood, right? This king is still a violent king. It's like, God rocks, and if you don't agree with me, I'm going to rip you limb to limb. Okay. So he's a cranky king, isn't he? Right? Here's the thing. God got his attention. He hasn't changed yet, but God's got his attention now. He got his attention that last chapter, five years earlier. Now God's like, no, you better be paying attention, Nebuchadnezzar, because I'm showing you that I'm still here. You know, there's a multitude of lessons we can learn from this story, and I want to just share a couple of them with you and challenge you with this, okay? As we look at this story, first of all, I want to challenge you with this. Please, 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 protect your time of worship. I don't have to tell you that you're all here this morning in worship. Protect your time of worship. Do not let anything come between you and God. General MacArthur, after Pearl Harbor had been attacked... He went back and he read documents about why Japan attacked on a Sunday at Pearl Harbor. As he went back and studied their war documents, he discovered that the Japanese actually sent people to America years before World War II, years in advance, and they studied American culture. And they studied about American culture was that all of a sudden we started getting paychecks on Friday. And we took our paychecks and we went and spent it wildly on Saturday. And a lot of people then were drunk on Saturday night, which meant Sunday morning they had hangovers, so they slept in. Sunday morning was a time of worship. The culture was starting to change in America, and Sunday morning was sort of a time of worship. But for a lot of other people, it was a time to sleep in and and a time to be leisurely and casual and not be alert. And Japan discovered, you know the best time to attack America? On a Sunday morning. They're all sleeping. They're all hungover. When I read that account and I was sitting there going, oh my goodness, Sunday morning should be, as a Christian, our most important time to be alert and alive. It's our morning to worship. But when we do whatever we want to do the night before and we hinder our Sunday morning worship, we become very susceptible to an attack by Satan. I would say this, church, make sure we protect our time of worship on Sunday mornings, whether you worship here or you worship in another church. Listen, our church isn't the only church preaching the good news, okay? Glad you're here, okay? But there's a lot of great churches out there, and I hope you pray for them as well. Here's the other thing I'd encourage you with. Don't build statues to anyone. Don't build statues to anyone. Because it's very easy to do that. We can very easily make our own statues out of ourselves, Where we worship our pleasure, our enjoyment, our fulfillment. We put that before everything else. 
We are very, uh, I'm very worried about our worshiping our children more than worshiping God. And I say this by the number of things and the number of mon- the amount of money we spend on our children more than we would use for other things. The amount of time we dedicate to making sure our children get everything they want except the holiness of God. And we can very easily fall into that trap. I'm saying this as a father of three boys who I'm not there yet and being a perfect parent, never will be a perfect parent. But as I'm learning in parenting, there are certain things I look back and say, we will protect this time. And I'm sorry, kids, but the answer is no, because I love you. And it's so hard because we want the best for our children. And it's very easy, though, to make our children a god. And we would quickly sacrifice everything else before we sacrifice for our children. I think of when um, some of the Old Testament stories, and I look back and I think, where were the sacrifices made? They were supposed to be made for God, right? I was watching a baseball game this past week. Uh, Chicago Cubs and St. Louis Cardinals were playing. Now, it's a big rivalry. And I saw something happen there that just basically summed up America for me in a nutshell. Uh, second baseman, I'm sorry, shortstop Addison Russell for the Chicago Cubs was out in the um, playing his position. A foul ball was hit over into foul territory. He took off sprinting. It's Listen, this, this is your rival. You're going to do everything you can to make a play, right? So he sprints and jumps into the stands to try to catch a foul ball. Now he misses the foul ball, but he hits a gentleman and his girlfriend or wife, I'm not sure, and their mom, and nachos and cheese fly everywhere. Okay, everywhere, into the ground, uh, onto the playing field, and everywhere. And Addison Russell comes down, and he's got cheese, nacho cheese just dripping off his arm. It's pretty incredible. And he's like, oh, boy. They had to towel him off, wipe off his cleats. And the guy over here is like, he's got nachos and cheese all over. Like, whoa, this is awesome. I just had a professional ball player jump in my lap, you know. And everybody's like cheering. And he's a St. Louis Cardinal fan. He's a Chicago Cub, rivals, right? Next inning, Addison Russell comes out of the dugout with a plate, a, a tray of nachos and cheese to take over to the fan. He walks over to the stands, a big smile on his face, hands in the nachos, shakes hands, like, yeah, and the guy's like, can I get a selfie? Like, sure, and they take a selfie, and they're smiling. It's like, we're in professional sports. Have you ever seen a professional ball player go over, shake hands with an opposing fan, give them nachos, right? I'm thinking, that's the way sports should be. That's fun, right? So he goes back off to play. Meanwhile, Nacho Man, and I don't say that disrespectfully, he called himself Nacho Man. I hopped on social media. I'm thinking, I wonder if that selfie's on social media. It was on social media just like that. It was on Instagram. I'm thinking, hey. And it said, at Nacho Man. He already called himself Nacho Man. 3,000 likes. 3,100 likes. You could just see the likes just moving. It's like people are clicking. Oh, I like it, like it, like it. I'm going, in between innings, people were coming down the stairs to this guy and Dads were bringing their kids down, get a picture with Nacho Man. They're taking their picture of their kid with Nacho Man. <laughs> kid you not, this kept going on the whole game. He was an instant celebrity. I'm sitting there going, I spill food on myself all the time. I'm not famous. <laughs> this guy is. It's like, this doesn't make sense. But isn't that America? You sing a good song. You can be just one good song. You can dance with the stars. You can spill nachos on yourself, and you're an instant celebrity and worshipped. It's like, that's scary, isn't it? Uh, we got to make sure we don't build statues to anyone, lifting them up and worshipping them because they did something really cool or something really awkward, right? Here's a third thing I want to challenge you with this stand. 
I want to challenge you to stand for godly things. Someone will notice that you're the only one that doesn't bow. Somebody's going to notice that you're the one that didn't gossip. Somebody's going to notice you're the one that didn't get drunk. Somebody's going to notice that you're the one that did not go to the men's club on that business trip. Somebody's going to notice that you got to work on time. Somebody's going to notice that you showed kindness. Somebody's going to notice the kind of words you use or don't use. Someone is watching. They will notice when you stand. And your standing may not be so much about you being obedient to God as it is to encouraging somebody else to stand as well. We don't do it to get recognized and we don't do it to stir up to get trouble. We do it because that's part of our DNA as a Christian. In the book of Luke, Jesus said, he said this, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. You must pick up your cross daily. Those crosses weighed 300 pounds. And Jesus, after he'd been flogged and his flesh had been ripped apart, he picked up a 300-pound cross and he had to carry it 650 yards down the street of Golgotha. That's carrying the cross. And then he looks at us and says, you want to follow me? Pick up the cross. What he's saying is, this is not going to be easy. But you can do it. But you can do it. He goes on to say, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world and lose your, uh, you are yourself lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Finally, I want to say this. You're not alone. You're not alone. Worship team, would you come up, please? I want to read two verses to you. Listen carefully. Don't pack it up yet. Don't put your Bibles away. Don't, like, dismiss, okay? These two verses I want you to hear. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8 says this. Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. For the Lord will personally go ahead of you. He will be with you. He will neither, neither fail you nor abandon you. And as, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were standing there, as they stood, God was already standing before them. And then God was standing with them, and God was standing behind them. He said, you're not alone. John 14, 16, Jesus said, I will ask our Father. He will give you another advocate, the Holy Spirit, and he will never leave you. Jesus said, I'm giving you my spirit. You are not alone. Christians, you are not alone. God's spirit stands with you. God is with you. He gives you the power to stand. He gives you the power to say, no, I'm not going to make any idols unto myself. I will not bow to anybody. God is the God of all nations. He's a God who sends a Savior. He is a God of great power. He's a God worthy of our trust. He is a God worthy to surrender to. He is a God who demands exclusive allegiance. Nebuchadnezzar knew a lot about God, but didn't know him personally. Do you? I've said all these things about who God is. Nebuchadnezzar knew who God was, but he didn't know him personally. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Listen, until you know him personally, you won't stand. Know him personally. Then you can stand with him. Would you please stand as I pray? Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. And I thank you, Lord, for this morning we can worship you. God, help us to know you personally, to surrender to you. And if we haven't, now's a good time to do that, to ask for forgiveness, to get our lives right with you, to seek you out and you alone. And God, having a personal relationship with you, 
that's going to help us, God, remembering that you are with us every step of the way so that when we have to stand, it won't be a problem to stand. It'll be an honor to stand for you. It'll be an honor to stand for you. God, help us to protect our times of worship, to not let other things get in the way. Help us, Lord, not to create false idols, whether it's something at work or at school, whether it's our kids, whether it's a sport, whether it's a recreation, whatever it may be, whether it's even money. All these things we could easily make God's. And they're not supposed to be that way. You're the only God. So God, I thank you this morning that we can come to you and proclaim you are the one and only God and we worship you and you alone. So God, as we sing to you now, let us sing as Christians who are standing for you. May you be glorified and honored in all we do and all we sing. In my name we pray, amen.